And I invite you to stand and we'll sing together Who Can Know the Mind of Our Creator. going to continue in worship with words from Psalm 104, accompanied by images to reflect, help us to reflect upon their meaning. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chariots on their waters. He makes the cloud his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. 
He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs, pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers and the land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted, and there the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, their labour until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Lephiathan, whom you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. 
but may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's join together in the song of whole creation as we sing all creatures of our God and King. Lift up your voice and with us sing. Thank you. 
Genesis chapter 2, beginning at the fourth verse. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Edom. There it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aramaic, Rezin, and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man, the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Men and women together, shall we join in saying the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen.
we stand to sing the perfect wisdom of our God. and uh, let's pray. Lord, forgive us for all those times when we've not said, Lord, may your will be done. Lord, have your way with me. For those times when your will has been clear and we have resisted it, For those times when we've chosen our way rather than your way. Thank you, Lord, that it's in your heart not to condemn us. It's in your heart to forgive us and set us right. Thank you that where we have gone wrong, your righteousness restores us. And so we come to you, created by you to be good, but so often bad. And we place ourselves in your hands of grace. 
And thank you that there we find love and forgiveness and restoration and the place where you make us right. And thank you that you loved us enough to give your son for us. For his body broken under the weight of our sin. His blood shed to cleanse us. For the eternal covenant you have made with us through him. That you forgive our sins and remember them no more. And we are your people and you are our God. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we do this because we know that on the night when Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to those who were his friends and said, this is my body which is for you. Take this and eat it in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you'd like to take communion, can I invite you in a moment to come forward? Michael and I will serve you with a wafer. If you'd like to receive a wafer, please put your hands out and we'll place one in your hands. Then take a cup and in your own time, take the cup and the wafer back to your seat and eat and drink quietly in remembrance of Christ. If you'd just like to have a blessing instead, please come up uh, with your hand across your chest like that and we will pronounce a blessing on you. If you would like us to serve you where you are, uh, when we finish serving everybody else, please raise your hand and we will come and bring the bread and wine to you.
Lord, thank you for the remembrance. Thank you for the bread, for the wine, for the body and blood of Christ. Forgiveness for the past. Strength and grace for the journey ahead. Thank you, God, for being our saviour as well as our creator. Amen. So let's stand and sing together, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. and rejoice in our friendship. So hear our prayer. Guide me, O thy great Jehovah. For all facing tough choices at work or in their personal life, for the government and new members of the cabinet. Lead them all their journeys through and use us, if not in our wisdom, then in our humanity, to show a way to the one who is the way, the truth, the life. I am weak, but thou art mighty. For all who feel vulnerable, abused or at risk, we pray for women and girls living in Afghanistan 
hold them with your powerful hand. And show us how we may be your hands, how even our weakness may be a conduit for your strength. Bread of heaven, feed me now and evermore. For those who live today in real hunger because their crops have failed, or their land is bad, or because they have no reward for their labour, or because no one wants their labour, or they're just too unfit to work. Feed them now and evermore. Prosper the work of the Red Cross, the UNHCR, and all those working for short-term relief and long-term quality of life. Bread of heaven, feed me now and evermore. For those who have a hunger for meaning and purpose, for those asking themselves today, God, where are you? Jesus, who are you? Feed them now and evermore, that they might find God in Jesus Christ. When I tread the verge of Jordan, for those facing death or serious illness, for those anxiously awaiting tests or surgery, for those who care for them and watch with them. Bid their anxious fears subside and make us agents of your loving care so that wherever we find ourselves, we and all your people may know your care and love to be stronger than death and that you are with us every single day. Amen. And let's reflect on God's presence with us every single day as we sing the hymn, Lord of all hopefulness. Yeah. 
curious features of Genesis that you have two creation accounts. The story is told twice. The first says creation took place over a period of seven days. That runs from Genesis 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 3, or maybe to halfway through chapter 2, verse 4. The second one incorporates the story of Adam and Eve eating the apple, focuses on the first human couple being placed in the Garden of Eden and it all going wrong when they eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The two accounts aren't easily reconciled. A cursory order, look at the order of events will tell you that. In the first account, land is created, plants grow, then you get the sun and the moon, then fish, birds, land, animals and people. In the second account, man comes first. Then you get the plants in the garden, then you get the animals, then you get the woman. Do the two accounts contradict each other? Only if you take them both as giving a sequential account of what happened. But is that the right way to read them? Given that it's difficult to reconcile either account with what we know about the origins of the world on a scientific basis, some, but not all, Christians prefer not to take these accounts literally. A good case can be made for understanding Genesis 1 to 11, all the stuff that happens before Abraham appears on the scene as myth. And I recognize that's a bit of a bogey word because you hear the word myth and automatically, automatically think that's not true then. But myth is a specific genre of storytelling, and we don't need to be scared of the term. One good definition of myth is that it's a form by which the existing structure of reality is understood and maintained. It concerns itself with showing how the action of a deity, conceived of as occurring in the primeval age, determines a phase of the contemporary world order. In other words, these stories explain why the world is the way it is. And they do it by telling the story of how God created the world in different ways. So whether you think the accounts of creation in Genesis 1 to 3 are historically true or not, there is still a great deal of value we can learn from them in, in terms of understanding God, the world, and our place within the world. The two accounts are different but are ultimately complementary perspectives on our place within the world. In Genesis 1, the people are made last in the image of God as the pinnacle of God's creative activity and are entrusted with the task of ruling over the rest of creation. In Genesis 2, the man is created first. He's placed in the Garden of Eden, and he's given the job of working it and taking care of it. That's the New International Version. But other translations opt for different pairings of words here. To work it and keep it. To cultivate it and keep it. To care for it and maintain it. To till it and keep it. But the first of the two words actually simply means to serve. And, and you can see why no translation chooses that option, because the idea that someone is put in the garden to serve the garden sounds really strange to our, eye, strange to our ears. But nevertheless, it's a vital point here. In Genesis 1, people are created to rule over creation. In Genesis 2, the man is created to serve the rest of creation means that the idea of servant leadership goes right back to the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. 
Before God, those who have authority, who are appointed to rule, are appointed to serve those whom they lead. That goes for our relationship with creation and with any position of leadership. Jesus lived out that principle in practice when he washed his disciples' feet, taking the form of a servant, telling them he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And some of you will have heard me enthuse before about the prayer that's up on the chapel wall in Sandhurst where army officers are trained. Almighty God, whose Son, the Lord of life, came not to be served but to serve, help us to be masters of ourselves that we may be the servants of others and teach us to lead to serve through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen to that. So Adam is put in the garden, not to relax and enjoy the benefits of it, but to work in it and to serve it. And in our home, it tends to be that the wife sits and enjoys the benefits of the garden and sends the man out to work in it and serve it. But hand in hand with that call to serve the garden comes a call which basically means keep in the sense of taking great care of something. Perhaps the best single English term to translate this word is the slightly old-fashioned English word, to tend. If you tend something or someone, you look after them, you watch over them, you take care of them, you minister to or wait on them with service, the well-being of that object or that person is your priority. It's a powerful word. You can't tend anything in a perfunctory or half-hearted manner. If that's the spirit in which you approach the task, you are not tending. Tending is commitment, it's care, it's devotion, it's love. I know that lots of you here look after your garden in exactly that kind of way. You tend your garden and it is your pride and joy and you find great fulfilment in doing so. You will know that God has not blessed me with the gift of tending our garden. But you are my garden. You are my garden. This is the place where God has put me to serve you and take care of you. And in your place of work, wherever that may be, whatever the place, whatever it is that you are doing, that is the place God has put you to serve, to tend, to take care of whatever people or project or business you are engaged with. And before God, we don't do that for the money or simply as a means of advancing our own career. It is our calling. It's our vocation to work in that place to serve and to tend. And work is part of God's purpose for us. We are most fulfilled when we are productive and when we are involved in the process of production and we benefit from what we produce. That's why those of you who have allotments get such pleasure out of it. God isn't into slave labour or the exploitation of workers. And so often, and we could have talked about this last Sunday night, but we didn't, evil is a corruption of something that's good. So work is good. No work is bad. Too much work is bad. Thumbs up to the Catholic Church for their clear teaching on this subject. Every person has a God-given right to meaningful work. Workers have a right to a just wage, defined as a wage sufficient for the head of a household to support that household in a modest way and to set some aside for retirement. 
We may quibble about precise definitions, but the principle is absolutely sound. So work is a good thing, but the problem for many of us is that these days work takes over. One Mental Health Foundation conducted a survey and found that more than 40% of employees were neglecting other aspects of their life because of work, making them vulnerable to mental health problems. If you're overworking, the odds are you'll feel depressed. 27% feel depressed. A third feel anxious. More than half feel irritable. And the more hours you spend at work, the more hours outside of work, you're likely to spend thinking or worrying about it. And as a person's weekly hours of work increase, so do their feelings of unhappiness. Nearly two-thirds of employees experience a negative effect on their personal life because of work. That's lack of personal development, physical and mental health problems, poor relationships, and poor home life. Too much work is damaging. So the advice is that we should all take personal responsibility for our work-life balance. Speak up when it gets too much. Try not to get caught up in activities that don't achieve anything, such as unstructured meetings. Take proper breaks. Ensure, if you can, that a line is drawn between work and leisure, but I recognise that isn't always possible. If you are working from home, work in a certain area of your home, somewhere where you can close the door and leave it behind. Make sure you don't neglect exercise, relaxation or hobbies. It's all easier said than done, but those of us who are prone to overwork or find ourselves stuck in a situation where we work too hard need to ask, am I living to work or am I working to live? And if you see that there is a need to change, remember that nothing will change unless you take some initiative. And when you're under pressure, it's easy to long for relaxation, isn't it? I've inherited workaholic tendencies from my father, there are worse things I could have got from him, I have to say. But I remember him telling me once, he went down to the seaside, and he was a photographer, he was working on a job, he saw all the people on deck chairs, basking in the sunshine with newspapers over their faces, and he thought, I would love to be able to come down here one day and do that. And he said one day he had a free day, and he went down to the seaside, and he was so uptight with work, he couldn't begin to relax and enjoy the experience of being down there. Work robbed him of the capacity to have a good day. So driven by work, we might think, oh, a day off would be wonderful. But if your idea of a, of a perfect day is an empty day, you might want to think again. Because the danger of overwork is that when we down tools and have time off, we're too exhausted to do anything else. And that's even worse. So you might have heard about the article published a couple of weeks ago in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, where some researchers find out how much free time we have and how we use that free time, all that has a direct bearing on our sense of well-being. Less than two hours free times a day, more than five hours free time a day, you aren't going to be doing very well. Having less than two or more than five is going to affect your mental health. You need to plan your time in days off to ensure there isn't too much empty space. Too much leisure time can be bad for us, especially if we spend that time slumped in front of the television or going online. None of that is good for our well-being. We flourish best if our leisure time is used in productive ways. That's why gardeners are such happy people. And we flourish best if we have a good balance 
between work and leisure. The lesson is that God has hardwired into our system a need to be productive. A reasonable amount of work, productive, fulfilling work, done diligently and well, is good for you. Even for those of you enjoying retirement. The writer of Ecclesiastes got it spot on when he said, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find fulfilment in his toil. This is from the hand of God. And he's absolutely right. What about church? Where does that fit in? Well, for me, it's work. For some of you, it's leisure. For others of you, it might just feel like extra work. Well, much of what I've said applies to how we find church as well. A degree of involvement in church, working in church, is good for our spiritual renewal. If we just pitch up at church and walk away again, that, then our lack of investment in the body of Christ will lead to poor returns and our spiritual energies will not be replenished. God has given us gifts he wants us to use by working in a church context. But equally, if we only ever come to church to work because we've got this or that duty to do, or, or church becomes all-consuming, then that will simply sap our energy reserves even further. As with all work, there is a balance to be struck here. Church works best when we are involved, when we carry a measure of responsibility, when we're working in a team together to serve and tend this or that part of the church's life. And whether we be working with people or with technology or serving with practical skills, there is joy to be found here in fulfilling work serving God within the church. But we can only all find that happy balance if everybody plays their part. An unhealthy church is where 80% of the people do 20% of the work, leaving the other 20% to carry the remaining 80%. That ratio leads to disaffection on the part of the first group and burnout in the second. So let me invite you to consider your work-life balance in employment. Have you got it right? Do you need to take a step back? Do you need to try and carve out some space where work is banned from your mind and your schedule? And if you have leisure time, how are you going to use that productively and constructively to get the best benefit from it? And if you're in church, what is God calling you to do? What, what level of involvement is right for you, given all the stuff you do outside of church as well? In your work, in your leisure, in church, how are you going to fulfill that dual calling to serve and to tend? What is God calling you to do? And how is he calling you to do it? Let's close by singing the hymn, Forth in thy name. Oh Lord, I go. There aren't many modern songs about work, I've got to say. You go back to the hymns. And if you're going to choose stuff that fits in with the theme, the hymns are there. So we close with this hymn Forth in Thy Name, O oh Lord, I Go.
we close by sharing together in the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.